0: You're listening to the Makers and Mystics podcast. This is season 12, episode five. When we think of identity, we often think of our distinguishing characteristics and individual preferences. But what about our sense of place? How does place impact the people we become and the art we make? My guest today is award-winning author and professor Esau McCulley. Esau McCulley completed his doctoral studies at the University of St. Andrews, where he studied under the direction of N.T. Wright. His book, Reading While Black, tells about growing up in the American South, where Esau experienced firsthand the ongoing struggle between despair and hope that marks the lives of some in the African-American context. In our conversation today, recorded live at the Hope Words Writers' Conference in Bluefield, West Virginia. Esau talks with me about the impact of place on his life and how his background growing up in a poverty-stricken Alabama informed his sense of self and the writing of his upcoming memoir, How Far to the Promised Land. Patrons of the podcast can enjoy an additional interview segment with Esau on finding your voice as an artist. I'm your host, Stephen Roach, and this is my conversation with author and professor Esau McCauley. Esau, thank you so much for joining me today on the Makers and Mystics podcast. It's an honor to talk with you. Thank you for having me. I've been researching some of your work and I admitted earlier that I'm just now getting familiar with it, but you said you had not read my book either. I've never read a word you've written, so we're like, (laughs) we're equal. (laughs) We're in a good spot here. A beginning of a friendship. That's right. Well, for our listeners on the Makers and Mystics podcast, uh, give us a bit of an overview of your background, some of your origin story. I believe you grew up in Huntsville, Alabama. Is that correct? So So tell us I grew up in
1: Huntsville, Alabama uh, from a long generation of black Baptist pastors. That's kind of the formative background. After that, I went from an all-black context to all-white school for most of my theological, my undergrad education, and later than that, my graduate education. I man, I did so much stuff. But I meandered around through life and eventually got a PhD in New Testament at the University of St. Andrews, (laughs) where I studied with N.T. Wright. And that was the first part of my career. I then graduated and I got a job in Rochester, New York. And I taught at a school called Northeastern Seminary. Then I got a job at Wheaton College. I wrote i um, a book that some people seem to like, except for you. <laughs> a lot of people read it except for you. Uh, it's called Reading While Black. But I'm also the author of a children's book called Josie Johnson's Hair and the Holy Spirit and a couple of other things. And like I said, I have a memoir that's coming out in, in September called How Far to the Promised Land. Yeah. So, I'll, oh, oh also I forgot. I write for the New York Times. That's the other thing. There you go. Write, Just write, a small <laughs> detail, I, right? That, that, was not, that, was not, that was not a, uh, what is it called? Like a humble brag. I there actually forgot about it. Um, I write a, a monthly column. I'm a contributing opinion writer for the New York Times times and I write a monthly column on like culture basically and sometimes faith.
0: Well, you said that you've talked a lot about Writing While Black on other podcasts. Uh. See, look, you got
1: the wrong title.
0: <laughs> Maybe <laughs> I should write the sequel, Writing While Black. That's the follow-up sequel. Up That's the follow-up There we go. I'm going to edit this out and fix that one. No, so. no, I should keep it. Should keep it. Like, you should just own it. <laughs> this, is so, a, this is a pop-the-trunk podcast. There you go. There you go. So you wrote this wonderful book, at least I hear that it's wonderful, yeah. <laughs> You know, called Reading While Black. Yeah. And you have talked about it on a number of other podcasts, but I want to touch on it here a little bit as well. Also talking about your upcoming book, which is a memoir. Yeah, and uh, so we'll get to both of those. But first, I want to start just by simply asking you, what's inspiring you these days? What are you reading, or what's calling your attention in this season?
1: Mean I think that the sounds. It sounds
0: not profound, but the world is kind of inspiring me.
1: I began to write seriously out of a sense of urgency, Mm -hmm. and everybody thinks that they see things coming. So we all believe that we're prophetic and we're really not. (laughs) And I'm not making any kind of claim to prophecy, but I remember I did my PhD at the University of St. Andrews and I came back to America um, from a time abroad in like 2016, the summer of 2016. And I felt like the culture was shifting and changing. And I felt like I wanted to do something and I couldn't fix the problems of the world, I mean, you know, I'm not a politician or, you know, and so I said, well, I they, c- they,
0: do they fix the problems well, at of least, the world? At <laughs> least they, can lie, at least they can lie to you about being able to fix it. At least they say, trust me and I'll make everything better. I couldn't promise that to people.
1: Yeah. And so I felt like this real urgency to intervene. And I have four children and I remember thinking, and I don't know why I had this thought. That I, kn- I remember what it was like to be 16. My children were young at the time. They're still young. My oldest is 15, but they were. this was six, seven years ago. And I remember thinking, I know what it's like to hit 15, 16, 17, 18 years old and get really cynical. A lot of people struggle with cynicism mm-hmm. in their late teens, early twenties. And I was worried that they're gonna one day look around at the church and see a, see a lot of its flaws and its brokenness and ask, does anybody care? Does anybody see these problems? And I wanted to be able to say, this sounds really silly. I want to be able to say to my children, here's all the stuff that I did. You can literally Google it. Like I, <laughs> when it was happening, I saw the problems and I did what I could. So that when my son or daughter comes to me and say, dad, do you care? Does Christianity care? Mm. And I want to say, son, daughter, here's my literary output. And so when I was writing, I never had any perception of anyone inviting me on a podcast, anybody reading it. It's really, de- you, can, you can read the, the dedication to reading while i black. It says something along the lines of, you know, if you ever lose your way, I hope this book helps mm-hmm. to, to guide you. And so part of the inspiration was I wanted to create a path towards kind of Christian faithfulness in what I thought was gonna be an increasingly complicated time. I, I didn't have any idea how complicated things were going to get over the last 6 <laughs> yeah. to 8 years, but that was a part of it. And, and really I had this um, this sense of imagination. Mm. And what I meant by that, I wanted them to be able to see a vision of Christianity they can inhabit for the rest of their lives. Mm-hmm. Kind of like, I understand how this is viable. And so that was really, that was my goal. I was inspired by worrying about um, how my children in particular, could find a way to be Christian. That's more than I can say, but I'll stop there.
0: No, it's really good. And I, I believe that you know some of what I've read is that it was important to you. You you really went after the idea of, is Christianity a religion that is beneficial for African-American yes. people, or is this something that's negative yeah. for African-Americans? So, can you talk to me about so that? That's the
1: thing that I was gonna say. It was, ju- it was not just my kids. It was um, African-American Christians in particular. It's almost, it's rare that people coalesce in your mind as a coherent thing. But I had a particular reader in mind when I wrote the book. And I remember all of the people during kind of the, 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 the marches and the protests in 2016 and 2017, I remember hearing over and over again, this isn't your parents civil rights movement. And they were explicitly saying, we're gonna do things differently. And the question was, Is Christianity a friend and not an enemy to African Americans? And it was it was before we had language um, about people kind of deconstructing all of those things. But I wanted to say, how can you reimagine a faithful way of following Jesus that doesn't allow the evils and the trauma that the churches have inflicted upon people to destroy our faith? Mm -hmm. And so I wanted to, I really wanted to say. Young, because I'd read a lot of books about black people. This is like a distinction that I talk about, but it's actually important. There's tons of books that explain black people to a white audience. And I said, I want to write a book, to not about black people, but to black people. And so I wanted someone to open that book and feel seen. And so that was a, a, a significant passion of mine. But what I didn't know is that, and this thing I didn't see coming is that African-American Christians weren't the only ones who were asking those questions. Mm-hmm. So in other words, my field of vision was small, the audience was bigger. And there's tons of people who are saying, oh, I'm coming to grips with the with the fact that the church is in many ways complicit in all kinds of um, mayhem and, and, <laughs> and, and disruption, but I still, am compelled by the person of Jesus. I still love his word when I open it. How can I keep those things? Mm-hmm. And so what I didn't count on was all of the other people who were saying, this book helped me to remain Christian <laughs> and to to not just remain Christian, but remain a Christian who saw in the scriptures that God who's a friend and not an enemy. And so I didn't see that part coming. I tell people all of the time, if you ever want to like make it big in writing no one ever says you should sure write a book on hermeneutics <laughs> <laughs> like i think i might be the first have you re- have you interviewed someone who's who wrote in hermeneutics before
0: i'd have to dig around yeah so, in other words, so, like, it wasn't
1: designed it wasn't designed to do that it was right. um it was really an act of it was really an act of god to um take my little hermeneutics book And on the academic side, not on the trade side, for the people who know about such things who listen to the podcast and have it go in all of the places, it's gone. It's been a real blessing. Yeah.
0: Well, in your research and in the writing of the book, what would you say were a few of the foundational points that you came up with that changed people's perspective on that?
1: I think that what happened, and truth be told, is when I started writing the book, they talk about finding your voice. I think it's important but i still think it's more important to find your place mm. in other words i i spent a lot of my life trying to be someone else so when i was in st andrews i was trying to be a british academic scholar when i was in evangelical um in seminaries i was trying to write like an evangelical but i'm a black southerner i'm from alabama and i know what alabama looks like Feels like, I know the culture, I know the food, I know which place to get, you know, fried chicken from and which place not to get <laughs> fried chicken from, I know the place. And so what I realized is that as a writer, I could only see kind of other cultures kind of in this haziness. And when I understood where I was from, it like the world became 3D, three wow. dimensional. I could see the whole thing. And when I found my place, then I could write from my place. And I realized that I was best at being me. Mm -hmm. And so in the course of that book, I found how to write honestly and not write the way that people told me how to write. And that particularity is what opened it up to being universal. Mm -hmm. And so, and then I began to realize looking back on it, there's tons of books that I have zero cultural connection to they spoke about what it meant to be human. They touched me. Like I love *Crime and Punishment*. Never <laughs> stepped foot in Russia. Never right. going to go to Russia, right? Um, I, I, there's tons. I mean, I've, <laughs> the *Lord of the Rings* doesn't take place on Middle Earth, right? And so, <laughs> like great fiction, but great fiction and great writers have a real sense of their own self. And so, when I became comfortable with this is true to who I am and where I come from and if people don't like it then they don't like it. Then the book took off. There's this one place that I talk about a lot in this transformative part where I was talking about policing and I was talking about um, getting pulled over by a police officer and I stopped. I remember clearly in the research, I said, oh man, I need to go and find a bunch of statistics around police stopping and show some of the racial biases. You can find them. And I said, oh, I need to stop writing and to go and do this research so I can put footnotes in the book so that people will understand. And then I said, well, no, every black person from the South knows exactly what I'm talking about. They don't need a footnote. And the book isn't for the people who need the footnote. The book is for the people who experience that kind of life. And that was like this turning point where um i i found myself free and then the other thing is like you have to you have to spend some time in the uk to understand it but there's a british reserve the kind of you know british literature there's right. a reserve and i'm not reserved and there's a kind of a, a rhetorical exuberance in african american writing and in african american christianity and I remember letting go of some of that r- rhetorical reserve, and mm-hmm. allowing the exuberance to come out. Um, there's a couple of pages where I was like, "Okay, I'm in my writing pocket," and I felt free in the joy of being myself. So it's really about finding your place is a way of finding your voice. And that um, happened midway through the book. If someone ever does redactional um, <laughs> criticism of reading my black, I can show you. On oh, that, I hadn't figured it out yet on this page, but by this page, because it's not it's not written in order, right? But there's certain there are certain chapters where by the time that chapter was written, I knew exactly what I was doing. And it's, it's been interesting to see because those are the chapters that people ask me the most about. It's like, yeah, I was like the other chapters, like, well, I was just messing around. I'd figured it out by that point. So the parts of the book that you don't like, if you read it, read it, they say that's, that's when he didn't know what he was doing. It's when I was just messing around. So there we go.
0: Well, I wonder as you've progressed as a writer and now you're writing this second book, which is more of a memoir. How does that experience impact the type of writing you're doing in this one? So,
1: it's funny because I've come to see if it's true for me, it's true for other people, hopefully. There's always um, books within books. In other words, Reading Why Black was supposed to be a hermeneutics book um, with kind of a little bit of accessible writing. And in one of the chapters, I think the policing chapter was one of them, where there was a story that opened it up. And then my editor's like, we really like this story part. Can you add more of this throughout the book? I said, oh, sure, I can do this. And anyone who's actually read the book there's kind of actually here's a redactional point and it gets to the memoir there's actually two introductions to reading on black if you're gonna know the two versions of the book there's two introductions that are in the book the introduction that now exists is one introduction and the appendix is the other one and we took the appendix the academic side and like we took it out of the book and just put it at the end because the the, the, the story uh, flowed better without kind of the academic part and so when the storytelling part like was added to the book it's what gave it it's like it's it's reach and people like we really love this and then um when i got later on um i got the job with the new york times and the new york times is, is an opinion piece so it's all kind of storytelling and um kind of uh evocative writing and so when it came time to write a memoir I was actually a little bit scared because it's one thing to say, if you have an 8,000 word chapter, you need 1,500 words of story. And then you go into the Bible bit, right? You do the exposition and and application. And so the biblical narrative is actually carrying the story. And so, or an opinion piece for me, my opinion pieces are 1,200 words on the long end thousand. so that's like, once again, it's a pretty short piece to write (laughs) 60,000 words of prose where you have to carry the story was a new reality for me and so it was scary. So in other words, I think that I was in Reading While Black becoming a storyteller and a writer, but I was afraid to kind of own it. So I would just run back to Bible and not that the Bible isn't great, but now I had to trust my ability to craft and tell the story from beginning to end and it's a it's a lot more scary, because if people, like, if you didn't like the story part, you could still like the Bible part, right? And I could kind of say, okay, my my Bible, my biblical interpretation is pretty good, if you like nothing else. And now it's me, though. Now it's like, I'm telling you my story. So if you don't like this book, don't email me, because <laughs> it's, like, it's like, it's a personal rejection. So it's a lot more vulnerable, and, it's required a lot more um, both creativity and reserve. Mm -hmm. Um, And so there's certain times as a storyteller and a writer, you have to pull back the rhetorical flourish and allow the story to grow. And sometimes you have to like, so like there's there's so many different skills that were required of writing a memoir that weren't required of reading while black.
0: Well, it's really interesting because you talked about finding your place in your first book and then in your second book you're actually talking about the place where you grew up and where you came from so it sounds like there was a bit of finding your sea legs and you know as well that you know you've heard it say that sometimes the particular is what appeals to the universal and it yeah. seems like you've you've gone through some of that
1: and that's what i mean so i started telling the stories here and there there so it's if, if it's, it's talking about like in our brains, like we don't know what we're doing. The first chapter of Reading While I'm Black is called "The South Got Something to Say," which is an odd title for a chapter in a book on biblical interpretation. That was <laughs> what it was called. And the subtitle of my current book is "One Family, One Black Family Story of Hope and Survival in the American South." Mm-hmm. And so, like, I was, trying to, I was trying to say, hey, what happens here matters in Reading While I'm Black. Mm-hmm. But in, in, in the memoir, I'm telling you the full story. And so, it was. It is one of the things that, that was driving the passion for this particular book is whose story gets to be universal? Oh, that's you good. know, uh, and so everybody. And no shade to Harry Potter, right? Everybody loves Harry Potter, and these are like four. There's three of them, four of them. Three of them. Three of the three other kids. Um, I've not. See, I haven't even read. Don't tell anybody. This between me <laughs> and you. I've never read Harry Potter. This I've is read, just a confessional
0: <laughs> podcast yeah. of what we've um, not read. right? Yeah, I'm not, I've I'm not read. I'm
1: not, I think I read part of it, and I was re- live tweeting it through, and then it kind of slipped through my mind. Anyways, so but those three kids become like these universal figures that everybody loves. But it's from a particular place, like England, modeled after Oxford and those kinds of things. And I say, well, why can't a story of a black kid and his family and the particular things that happens in the South become not just a story about him, but a story about what it means to be human. And so I said, why can't we get a universal story? I'm not the only person to do it, it happens all of the time. But one of the the tricky parts is when people want stories about humanity, they kind of go, oh, let's go read a, you know, Harry Potter or whatever kind of some memoirs and fiction things you think about. And then they say, when you're gonna go read a black book, then we do a black book. I said, no, 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 this book is black. It's about black people. But particularly because it's about Black people and our experiences, it's it's open everyone because African American life and culture isn't closed off, and so that was that was one of the many motivations for writing it, it's just a chance to tell a story, uh, and the story, I'm passionate about it because, as as with reading my black, I'm not good at following instructions, and what I set out to do, I don't always do. You kind of discover the book when you begin to write it. And so when they asked me to write it, it was like a memoir. It was like the normal, I call it a Horatio Alger story dipped in chocolate. (laughs) (laughs) And I said, but you know, one of the problems when you tell the story of like a person who grows up poor and who overcomes all of these things on the way to the middle class, is that it kind of normal, it, it it makes it seem like the only people who matter are the people who succeed. That my story's instructive because I made it to the New York Times or whatever. But I felt like, you know, and the people who you experience along the way are simply object lessons. they teaching the, the the protagonist about what they need to learn to get to the place they want to go. And I said no. Like my whole family matters. So that's why it's like the book was like how far to the promised land, one black family story. So it's actually it's a memoir that's so focused not on the protagonist. It's about all the people around me. And what I wanted to what I want to show is that every single person's life, regardless if they make it to successfulness by the way that we define it teaches us something about what it means to be human, not as an object lesson for me, right? It's not something that like, oh, I learned from this person who was poor and who didn't make it out and therefore inspired me. I say, no, 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 that life in and of itself is important. And it goes over like generations. It goes back to my, all the way back to my great grandmother and how she grew up on the tenant farm and the things that happened to her and like her story in and of itself is important. And I told the story of my grandfather who also grew up on a tenant farm. And, who, and so like, it's like this, um, I the, I am moving through these things and I'm having these experiences, but I, there's significant portions of the book where I'm not the star. And I kind of I seed space to allow people to meet my family. Because whatever I am, I am like the product of all of these people, not a product of some kind of interior, um, what makes you special, right? Maybe I had this strong conviction, which is an odd thing to do if you're gonna write a book about yourself, that I'm not special, that my community is special, the place that made me is special. And so I wanted people to see that community. And when they see it, I wanted them to to not be comfortable with, with what it takes to survive. And anybody who kind of makes it from one place to the other kind of says it shouldn't be this hard. And so I think that if you get to the end of it you you might not think that I'm amazing. Hopefully you think that. You think you, hopefully you know that I'm not amazing. Hopefully that's something you see. I don't can know. Say. I
0: think you're pretty amazing and but, I've not <laughs> read any of your books.
1: <laughs> but I, but I hope that people say, you know, what kind of world creates the need for this kind of resilience to make it? So how far to the promised land is um is this question of like, you know, you, the people of Israel—they are around like, are we, we going to get there yet? Are, you know, are we there? And it's like you, you're almost there, you're never quite arriving. And so it, that's part of it. I could I could talk about that book forever, but I really wanted to tell their story. That spoke about um, my place, like the community that made me, and all of these people. I remember mom used to tell me, um, when you get to where you're going, don't forget where you came from. And um, this is my way of saying I haven't forgotten. It's a big risk, right? <laughs> so I hope that people like it. But it's it's more it's 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 the exercise of remembering. And I think I used to, I used to read and maybe I just it's my own agenda. I used to read people who grew up poor and who talked about poor people with disdain, and it always bothered me. And they kinda go, you should work as hard as I did. That's like, you know you weren't the best person in your community. (laughs) You know that this bullet missed you, or this silly thing that you did in high school you get caught for, or a, 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 a significant amount of time where God was simply gracious to you, and you survived because of the goodness of God, not because of your exceptionalism. And I think that exceptionalism normalizes unjust structures. And so if I can tear down exceptionalism in this book and help people to see places um, from which the supposedly exceptional arise, then I would have succeeded.
0: So good, my friend. Wow, so good. I wanna ask you to lean into that idea a little bit more. Talk to me about how exceptionalism normalizes unjust systems. I'd love to hear your thoughts more on that bit. (laughs) So
1: what, what what I was trying to get at is I think that I think that um America as a culture, we sometimes know intuitively that we've not treated certain groups of people well. Like unless you're just super cowless, you kinda realize, oh man, like this isn't this isn't fair. And this is a sense of guilt. And so what you want to read the story then is of someone who survives. And if someone survives, you can say, Well, it's hard, but it's survivable. And so what you want to do is you want to go on the journey with that person and see the things that they experience. You kinda of go, that's wrong. So all you do is to read this, go, I don't like that this person experienced this thing. So you you condemn the right thing, and then you say, Oh, this person overcame it and you celebrate the right thing and you've had an emotional journey. You felt bad about the fact that things are bad in America, and you feel good that some people still make it, and then the book's over. Um, the part that got cut out of the book is me talking about this phenomenon. People say, oh, you read this latest book and you kind of pass it around to your neighbors, you all feel bad about it and you kind of move on to the next thing. But that doesn't actually question, cause you to question, why was those kinds of things necessary? And so when I say I want to challenge exceptionalism, I want to say what I really want is for normal people to be able to thrive, not exceptional people in my community. In other words, I know tons of people, and it's not angry with them, who are just kind of knuckleheads in high school and who kind of went to my, because they, they had a wealthy family, they had a good support system, and there was someone to keep them on track during their knucklehead phase. So they kind of pulled themselves together by the time they were 22, 24, 30, they kind of, it, it was fine, right? So in other words, they were, there was a time to be ordinary. And one of the things that people don't often notice or know about what it means to grow up without, without money, without resources, the margin of error is so slim. Like you can do everything right and make one small mistake and the whole thing kind of crumbles. And so when that is the standard for poor people and the standard for, what I, for like the middle class and the wealthiest, like there's a lot more room, that's the, that's the injustice, right? How can you make a society well, children can make mistakes. That may seem like a silly thing to say, and and so what I was trying, what I was trying to articulate is that phenomenon. So, in other words, when I'm when if, when, you, when I'm talking about my high school, and someone does something that kind of sends their life hurtling, you know, off to the side, the response isn't, you know, you should be perfect. It should be like, why did this person's life? have to like take this dramatic turn because they make one mistake. There's so many people make. And so exceptionalism, uh, the exceptionalism required of the poor is not often examined. And that's what I really, that's what I really wanted. And, and so some of these these stories of exceptionalism can normalize it and you hear it so much in discourse. You just kind of feel like, do you, act, do people hate poor people? like these not like us and kind of go, oh, you know, we shouldn't, you know, if you, if you have, um, you know, uh, food stamps, you shouldn't be able to buy these kinds of food or you shouldn't have a phone or you shouldn't have like a cell phone or internet access. There's all these ways in which we say, because you're poor, you ought to suffer more. And if you suffer more, you'll work harder to get out of it. And it just, it, 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 it to me was not true of my experience. And so I really wanted people to, to see that. That's one aspect of it. There's tons of like yeah. other stuff in the book, but like that driving sense of see the place yes, um, and see the place across generations. And that's what I wanted people to be able to do.
0: Yeah. Well, I love what you're talking about. You know, we've talked a lot about in art circles about finding your voice, but I love this, spin on that of finding your place, you know, and there's, there's something about how individuality and community work together. And, you know, I've studied a lot about the difference between individuality and individualism. Yeah. Individuality can tend to be the beauty of your unique person being expressed. Individualism is that John Wayne cowboy kind (laughs) of, you know, like I'm the guy and, but it sounds like even through this story, and through a lot of your work, which I'd love to get into as well, that you really recognize the importance of place and experience and how that impacts your identity and your sense of self. And and I think that,
1: and and if, if I can be nice to like potential readers, is I have the enthusiasm born of someone who came to this realization for myself. In other words, I was I, I kind of bought the reason I tell the story the way that I do now is because I bought into the other version of the story. Mm. You know when you're when you come from like a rough neighborhood or whatever, and you have to write the essay to get into college, you got to tell them, hey, it's really bad here, but I'm special, mm. and you have a chance to help this you know this poor kid. And so they society teaches you how to tell the story to get you the way you want to go. Mm. And if you tell that story enough times to get enough places you can start to believe that lie yourself. And so for me, the the coming to grips with that community and telling this story this way is my way of finally acknowledging the truth mm-hmm. about my, my own story. Mm-hmm. So in the process of writing it and even coming up with it, it was another step. And it didn't just begin with this book, it began with some of my New York Times opinion pieces. It's like, how do I learn to love a place that also broke my heart
0: mm-hmm.
1: and so if you grow up in a place that has real economic or social or cultural problems, you both love it and you hate it sometimes right and so sometimes the hate wins and there's a period of your life where you're just like hurtling from it like in the trauma of it and you and you lose perspective on the beauty that was there because it's easy to explain to people the pain. It's hard to explain the beauty, and what sorry to talk about the book, but you're the first person interviewing about. That's great. <laughs> it. One of the things, one of the other things that I was struggling to do, in in how far to the Promised Land, was to show the beauty and the joy that's in poor places.
0: Yes, I love it. And so
1: people just don't understand how like I was broke, but I wasn't sad all of the time. I have friends and we, and we did stuff that like in retrospect, like I have no idea how we lived through any of it, but it was fun. <laughs> and so how do you, these are, the, these are the tensions of telling our stories. How do you tell about the joy that you had and the ways in which despite all the things that were pressed down upon you, you found happiness? And so that you're afraid to talk about the happiness because people when they see the happiness, they kind of go, Oh, it's okay for them to have those things. they you know, it's almost when people go go to like a majority world countries and go back, oh, those people didn't have anything, but they were so happy. Well, no, they were happy and they were sad. And so the tension between the joy and the sorrow and my both love and my hatred, hatred is probably too strong a word. I never hated my community, disdain and frustration. That that tension is something I was trying to process in my own life and to, to finally come to a place where I can honestly speak about both of them and then, and then find myself. The other thing is like when you're an artsy kid, like you don't think about yourself as an artsy kid in those kinds of neighborhoods, but you also don't exactly fit in. So I can see it. I can see my neighborhood very well and I knew the role that I was supposed to perform within that place, but I wasn't always good at it. And so even, you talk about individuality in the context of community, I had to come to grips with, I am a part of this culture, Mm -hmm. I love it, I also am frustrated by it, but I'm not the perfect manifestation of it. I'm my own person, Mm -hmm. right? Like I I am separate from it in the sense of I had to find me within all of this. Because there's also a way in which the, the, a, a community can force you down a certain road that wasn't made for you. And I didn't know it, but I was kind of like a writer. And um, I, I don't fucking call myself an artist. That might be too highfalutin. <laughs> but I was like, I, I had this um, this part of me that like there was no place without to flourish. So I almost had to leave the community to become who I was meant to be, who God created me to be. And then when I finally became who God created me to be and had space, I could kind of see that community for what it really was and see both this positive and negative impact on me.
0: Wow. That's beautiful. That's beautiful. One thing that I've heard you say, uh, it's a quote from you on a read read. Oh, you're going to quote me? I'm going to quote you here. Okay, yeah. <laughs> what did I say? And it ties into what okay. you're talking about now, but uh, you said one of the healthiest things that you can do is let your heroes be different from you, respect those differences and honor the person anyway, Otherwise, you do not have heroes, you are simply admiring a more well-known version of yourself. And the reason I bring that quote into yeah. this conversation is because one thing that I know, that I have learned about you that I appreciate is your appreciation for nuance. Yeah, You know, I think it's easy, like even you said, it's it's easy to talk about the pain and the trauma and the difficulty, it's, yeah. it's its a little more difficult to talk about the beauty. Yeah. And in the same way, I think, especially in this cultural moment, yeah. it's easy for us to make our enemies two-dimensional or it's easy to, to flatten the people that have harmed us or to flatten the people that we don't like. Yeah. But something I see in your work and in your writing is that you allow even those that you don't agree with agency and still, you know, the nuance of being a complex person. And so I'd, I'd love for you to speak into this, maybe even through the lens of this memoir that you're writing.
1: I mean, it's almost, it's, when you say stuff like this, it shows me how much the stuff that I was thinking about and writing comes across in other places. The, the memoir's origin point and the thing that, that, that bookends the story is my father. My grand, my father died in 2017 in a single car accident. He was a truck driver in California. And my family asked me to do the eulogy for his um, funeral. But more than that, like we were estranged. So most of my life, he was an addict and he was in and out of the house. And for a long time in my life, I didn't like him because when he left and he got addicted, it's one of the things that sent us hurling into poverty. And so, but I'm a clergy person. It's one of the things that I do. And when you write a eulogy, you got to tell the beginning, the middle and the end. And you got to find God somewhere in the midst of all of it. And you can't lie because you're in church. You got to tell the truth, right? (laughs) And so this process of uh, having to tell my father's story, and I didn't know most of it. So I didn't know how he grew up because we never had real conversations. I didn't know a lot about his childhood. And I didn't know about you know, my, him and my mom's early relationship. You kind of come as a kid in media rest. You come in the middle of things and all of this past and history is already there. And so I had to, not just in the memoir, but in the latter stages, I can't tell you the whole book, the latter stages of his life.
0: I'm gonna read this one.
1: Um, come to grips with who he was and how he shaped me and how I both loved him because everybody loves their dad, even the dads who harmed them. We, have, we love what the idea of a parent could be. And because that's the person who's there, you infuse all that hope with them. And you kind of imagine that they were just better, my life would be better. And so that's the, that's the kind of longing that children have for their parents. Like you have the power to make my life better, but you don't. And so there's a love and a frustration. And so for me, the, the process of, of coming to peace with my father's story. And so the book is kind of like all the things that I learned in preparing, the, the eulogy begins this process of uncovering my family's story and learning to see my father with nuance. Because when you're a kid, if your father's an addict, you know nothing about addiction, you just kind of go addict, bad guy and you kind of grow up and you're a pastor and you begin to understand how addiction works, you kind of go, oh, there was some biochemical stuff there. Or you say, when he comes and goes and then he kind of slides back into drugs, I thought he did that because he hated me, right? That was, like as a kid, you kind of go, you do drugs because you hate your kids. Mm. And when you become an adult, you kind of go, well, no, the drugs sometimes win and Coming to that kind of place of understanding of my father was my window into coming to understand how I talk about my community. See how these things relate together? Yes, And then it's how I began to see life Mm -hmm. is that the story of what God is doing in someone's life is there, even when that story is not as clear as we would like it. And there's places where sometimes, not in every case, that you can kind of get to the end and say, it was messy but God was in the midst of it. And so I learned to see that with my father in the memoir and I learned to see that about my community. And then that's kind of permeated into all my writing that I try to say, okay. So I remember one time, this was back in 2020 when Reading My Black had first come out in early 2021 and it was doing well, but it talked about race. And if you're a black person talks about race, Christians are gonna get mad at you. And so these Christians, <laughs> some Christians are yelling at me on the internet and they're just like saying the concept that the people say. And um, I remember getting online and I was about to like, you know, jump into the, to the, <laughs> like, to the fray and yell back at them. And then I realized, you know, I'm kind of angry at these people for saying jerky things about my book, But I'm also kind of sad because at the time, my wife who was in the military reservist, she had been called to active duty and she had deployed. So she was gone from our house and I was raising the four kids during the middle of the pandemic. And so I was already frustrated by the kids' school. My wife was in another part of the world, another part of the country, the United States. And like, I had, you know, papers to grade and there's this jerky guy on the internet. (laughs) I remember thinking to myself, am I mad at him? am I mad at all the other things that are going on in my life? I said, well, it's kind of a mix. And so I, I said, so if I have all of these pains and traumas that I was gonna get off by yelling at this random person on the internet, what is this person on the internet actually mad about? Are they mad at me and my book? They probably didn't read, they read, they didn't understand it. They understood it, then like, did they give me a fair... Or are they just angry about something else? What's going on in their life? What's going on in their marriage? What's going on with their kids? What's going on with their job? Is this the only chance that they have to feel seen and heard? And so I'm not going to just like yell, like we could be two damaged people fighting about something unrelated. Because I see people on God's internet and say, you cannot be that angry all of the time. Like <laughs> something has to be happening. And even if you're arrested, like, I just don't understand how you can put produce that much vitriol and still be like happy in your life. Maybe they can do it and I just can't see it. But if I was that mad all of the time, yeah. I can't imagine the hugging my, yes. <laughs> used to say in, in Alabama, did you kiss your mom with that same mouth? <laughs> <laughs> and so yes. I just kind of feel like for that reason, I try not to treat my even enemies as disembodied enemies. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's kind of how I, tr- I just try. I try. I try to see. I try to view everybody as a person.
0: Mm-hmm. Well, one thing that I've noticed about your writing and your work is that you've really championed the importance of bringing your experience to the way that you view the Bible, um, your work as a professor, and. I've recognized that, you know, through even just listening to a podcast with you earlier today as I was driving up here, just how important it is to recognize that we do, whether it's conscious or unconscious, bring our experience to our spiritual life, to the Bible, and yeah. for instance, for me, I can't read the Bible without seeing creativity on every page. I can't read the Bible without seeing yeah. where artistry and beauty fits into this whole narrative drama that, that is the Scriptures, yeah. but I'd love to hear you speak into that a bit.
1: Yeah, it's one of the things where you never know in your life what ideas people will find controversial, mm-hmm. and I just never understood why people would be afraid of this idea. And the truth is, we can only be who we are. And when you talk about creativity, this is a good example. Like I don't come to the Bible looking for instances of creativity. And because I don't look for it, I may miss what is there. But because you're looking for it, you may see what is there. And so that means that our experiences can actually help us attend to the Bible carefully. And maybe God made us different different cultures, different you know, dispositions, so that together we might discern the mind of Christ. And so when I suppress who I am in the interpretive process, I may be missing out on something that God might show to me because I have the, the the disposition to ask that question that I can then give to the world. In the same way that you can take what you have and you give it to the world. But the fact that we're all still trying to read this book together. And see it as authoritative is good because you can say, "Hey, Esau, I'm really glad that you had this thing that led you to this place, but sometimes your um, creativity or whatever can lead you astray." So it's not that we all just bring it all to to the table and it's like this this collage. No, no, like there there is there are boundaries. But I think it's just dishonest to say that we don't bring who we are to text. And part of it is there was so much time in my life where I felt forced to conform mm. because somebody has some control over me. And so I had to be like, I, I, the way I talk about it is when you're an African American in the United States, they say there are things that black people can't do. And so you say, well, no, I'll show you that black people can do it. Like the first black judge, the first black lawyer. And so what you're trying to do is there's like this endless list of things they say black people can't do. And so you, you play the game that is set for you so you can achieve the thing that they told you to achieve, but you're like following someone else's map. And for me, freedom was when I finally stopped chasing someone else's checklist and felt free to be myself. Yeah. And the moment I felt free to be myself and people liked it, I was like, you are not controlling me again. <laughs> <laughs> and so um, that, was, that was what I, and, and, and I want that freedom for other people. I want people to say, not that like I go and I construct who I am and I say the world takes it, but like God gave me certain gifts and God gave me certain passions. and. It is precisely in and through God, my relationship with him and the inspiration of the Holy Spirit that i become that which God wanted me to be all along. And when I become that which God wanted me to be, not this idea that I just construct, but when God reveals himself to me and I find out who I truly am in Christ, no one can suppress that. There's this passage in the Bible that we talk about a lot, is that it's in the end, Revelation 7 9, um, and it says that every tribe, tongue, and nation comes into the kingdom of God. And every, any artist will tell you that language is in culture. They're like, like Spanish yeah. and, 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 and the culture that's attached to those languages are inseparable. So in so much as the Bible speaks about different languages coming into the kingdom of God at the end of time, he's talking about different cultures coming into the kingdom of God at the end of time. So that God created cultures to last forever, they're eschatological, and that those cultures find themselves in the worship of the one true God. And so if I found myself in the worship of the one true God as a part of my culture, then I can't I can't squash that down because I am I I'm, I'm, I'm literally being disobedient to God, who created culture to glorify Him. And so African American culture is one means through which peoples give glory to God. And if you're from a different culture, then your culture can give glory to God when redeemed according to his purposes. And then we can all sing the same song, right? We can sing the same song of God's glory from our distinctive culture. One of the ways of imagining um, the new creation is one of testimony. What it like to be a Christian in the 12th century in Italy and how did you give glory to God through that? What it was it mean to be a Christian in the 1960s in an African-American context in the South? How do you give glory to God? And so what I want to do is preserve my culture so that our story, not in competition, but in concord with other people, sing the, sing the song of God's praises. Mm-hmm. That's
0: beautiful. Esau, thank you so much for spending this time with me on Makers and Mystics today. I'm looking forward to reading your books now. Thank you. And uh, hopefully you're looking forward to reading mine too, right? Yeah,
1: you mail, you mail it to me and I will
0: I will, I will read it. Uh, can, I, can I say that? You could, you could write a critique yeah, about I it critique in the New York Times. It. Yeah, that would be great. Like, <laughs> thank you for listening to the Makers and Mystics podcast. For more information on how you can support this work of advocating for art, faith, and culture, see the show notes of this episode or visit patreon.com slash makersandmystics. Be sure to give us a follow on Instagram at makersandmystics and leave us a kind review on Apple Podcasts. We'll see you again next week. And until then, keep creating. The world needs your art.